The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange traded funds, you are in the right place. Every week we're bringing you interviews, market analysis, and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Today on the show, we'll sit down with one of the world's largest value fund managers and get his take on where the markets are headed in 2022 with the looming threat of a faster taper and potential rate hikes coming down the pike. Plus, why more mutual funds are embracing the ETF model now more than ever and whether hot thematic trends like ESG, crypto, and the metaverse are built to last. Here's my conversation with Gerard O'Reilly, co-CEO and chief investment officer of Dimensional Fund Advisors, along with Nate Giroxi president of the ETF store. Gerard, the reappointment of Jay Powell has the markets operating under the assumption that future Fed policy will now tilt towards a more hawkish stance. What, in your opinion, does this mean for stocks in 2022? And, and what does raising rates mean for the markets right now? So thanks, Bob, and thanks for having me on the show. It's good to see you. You know, when you look at what the Fed is doing today, they're really telegraphing uh, what their plans are over the next few months. And so the market is incorporating that information into prices today. Uh, so what we tell our clients is, well, let's look to the long term to see how markets have incorporated this type of information in the past. And when you look at back over the past 40 years, Bob, the average monthly return on the U.S. market has been about 1% a month. And when you look at it in months when the Fed has raised the Fed target Fed funds rate or decreased the target Fed funds rate, it has been about 1% a month. And regardless of what the Fed has done, about two-thirds of the time, the market has gone up in, in months, whether it's raised or decreased the target Fed's funds rate. So the Fed is telling the market what it's planning to do. The market already has, pri has priced that in. So if the Fed does what the market expects, you can expect uh, the long pull return on, on markets, in my view. And that's effectively what we're telling our clients. Focus on the long term. Look at the long term data. Yeah, that's what you guys are all about. Now, now Gerard, I want you to uh, reiterate your investment philosophy. I always ask you to do this when you're on. You're very closely aligned with index investing, but you layer over that a small cap and a value tilt. Can you explain that and what the, the ideology and the methodology is? Uh, yes, indeed, Bob. Uh, we are closely aligned uh, with index investing. Uh, but how I like to describe ourselves is that we're systematic fundamental. And what does that mean? Uh, well, it's not something new. That's the good news. We've been doing this for 40 years. But what it means is it takes a lot of the benefits of indexing, whether that's low cost, whether that's transparent, rules-based approach. And what it layers on top of that is a daily process, daily oversight. And that daily oversight allows us to take information from stock prices, from bond prices, uh, to increase expected returns and manage risk, in my view, more robustly than an index approach does. So you can think about it as all the benefits of indexing, uh, but then uh, take that active implementation uh, and try to add value in excess of indexing. And you're right, Bob, we do tilt to small cap and value stocks, as well as high profitability stocks. And what we're pursuing there are higher returns on behalf of our clients, because over the long pull, what we've seen is small cap value and high profitability stocks have outpaced the market by about two to three to four percentage points a year. So we're pursuing those higher returns on behalf of our investors. I want to come back to that higher profitability uh, shortly, but let me just follow up, Gerard. A small cap and uh, small cap value have done well this year. 
But it's really the first outperformance in several years. So we've got this uncertainty over the Omicron variant. But what's the outlook for small cap and value in 2022? Are you basically just still stay the course? Is Do you think small cap and small cap value can, can outperform growth uh, and, uh, and uh, big cap in 2022? Uh, we do indeed, Bob, because when you think about the Omicron variant and, and you think about news, New news when it comes to the marketplace, it moves stocks. After it says move stocks, people may still talk about it, but now it's old news. Uh, and so market prices are forward-looking their predictions of the future. Uh, and again, uh, what's known about the Omicron variant is known and already priced into stocks. So again, we look to the long pull. And over the long pull, even after years when small value has outperformed large growth, and we see this in, in the data, uh, the following 12 months tend to be pretty good for small in value, you get a little bit higher than the long pull average. And that long pull average, by the way, uh, Bob, has been you know, about 4% uh, or so per year for small value in excess of large growth, maybe even higher in some years. Uh, so again, we tell our clients, invest for the long term and look to the long term to inform their expectations on any given year. So we think small in value stocks are well poised to outpace the market for 2022. You know, uh, Nate, despite what Gerard is saying, investors, uh, at least CNBC viewers, seem pretty obsessed uh, with growth and have been for the last decade, really, since the, the Fed has been stimulating uh, the economy. Uh, but investors are paying an awful lot of money for growth these days for a, a future stream of, of earnings, at least for a, a dollar's worth. Uh, is that going to change in 2022? Do you think, as Gerard thinks, that small cap or value may outperform? Yeah, I don't think there's any question. The overall backdrop here is growth is richly valued at this point. And especially as you start to go down the quality spectrum, look at areas like unprofitable technology companies. They're clearly overvalued at this point, and we're seeing the ramifications of that here recently in the market. Uh, I, I want to echo what Gerard is saying, and that certainly taking a long-term approach here is prudent, but there's a lot of confusion in the marketplace right now, and that the Omicron variant, that could have a meaningful impact on the economy if things are worse than expected. But at the same time, we have a Fed who is taking a more hawkish posture at this point in time, indicating that inflation may not be transitory. And perhaps they may look at tapering bond purchases sooner than expected and, and raising rates sooner than expected. In my opinion, those two things are at odds with each other because if the, the variant is more of an issue than expected. Clearly, the Fed can't be overly aggressive in that situation. Now, you could have a, a, a unique situation where perhaps the variant is more of an issue and it does have some economic impact, uh, but, but that ultimately leads to supply chain constraints. And you start seeing greater inflationary pressure even while the economy isn't doing so well. That would be a very tricky spot for the Fed to be in, and in my opinion, right. probably right. a worst case scenario. So that's the that's the problem, Nate. I mean, uh, most viewers who I talked to wrote into me said they assumed Omicron would make the Fed more dovish, but it's turning out Omicron is making the Fed more hawkish because they're even more concerned about potential inflation because the supply chain disruptions might continue under Omicron. That's what's causing all this confusion out here. That's why people can't figure out why is the 10-year yield so low if, if we're going to have problems down, down the road. It just creates a lot of you know, confusion. At least the viewers are, are totally confused uh, right now, Nate. No, there's no question. Now, I will say we can look at what the Fed has done over the past decade plus. Clearly, they've been supportive of the financial markets. 
And when you think of the one instance when they attempted to get more aggressive back in the fourth quarter of 2018, the market clearly reacted negatively and the Fed quickly reversed course. And so I think investors have this feeling that the Fed is always going to be supportive of the market. And until we see something different, I think that's probably a pretty good bet. Yeah. You know, Gerard, you started out the year uh, converting several equity mutual funds into t ETFs. I want to talk about your new offerings here. Uh, now you're listing four fixed income ETFs and filing for 10 uh, more equity ETFs. But this, again, is somewhat actively managed. Again, investing in bonds uh, that you've got here, but you're, ex you're trying to figure out how you can get higher expected returns, right? That's right, and uh, we launched and listed four uh, uh, fixed income ETFs about three weeks ago, Bob, and uh, they've done well so far in terms of uh, meeting client demand, and we have over a half a billion across the four fixed income ETFs in the first three weeks or so. I think Nate made a, a few very good points uh, around what's expected and unexpected, and in particular, if what's expected happens, well, then you get the expected outcome, but unexpected things may happen as well. And I, I, I will go back to the inflation point uh, that Nate was making there. And <clears throat> when you think about inflation and whether you can predict it or not predict it, uh, certainly the market over the long pull is pricing in, if you look at break-even yields, you know, around high twos into low three percentage points. Uh, but what you can't, you can't predict the unexpected, uh, but you can plan for it. And so if market participants are worried about inflation or worried about higher interest rates or lower interest rates, you can certainly plan for it. Uh, and with inflation, it's outpace it or it's hedge it. And they're your two choices. What we know over the long pull is stocks and bonds have outpaced uh, inflation. And we know that there are plenty of instruments out there like tips that can hedge it. Yeah. So again, right. I think there is a lot of uncertainty, but there's lots of choices for investors uh, to plan well for 2022. And the key, Gerard, it seems to me historically that stocks do well in periods of moderate inflation because corporations generally have pricing power and they can raise prices. The, what, the problems where I've seen is sudden inflation, like in the early 1970s, beyond expectations where corporations lose pricing power. And then you see real underperformance inflation adjusted, right? I mean, that's why we sort of are worried about inflation getting out of control. We don't care about 2% or 3% inflation a year because we know the market's going to do well long-term, equities will. But when you get sudden inflation, you lose control of pricing power. Is that a right way to look at it? Yeah, when you get sudden inflation, certain assets may go down and certain assets uh, go up. So, for example, if you have sudden unexpected inflation, uh, generally what happens is that inflation-protected uh, bonds do a lot better than real bonds our nominal bonds, excuse me. Uh, and so, again, if you're worried about that, there's plenty of instruments out there, like an inflation-protected strategy, uh, that can do very, very well when you have uh, unexpectedly high inflation. And so that may impact stocks in a particular way. Uh, but as, as mentioned, there, there's plenty of strategies that, that do well in those environments. Right. Inflation-protected securities haven't worked very well for many years, but they may well work well in 2022. You know, uh, Nate, well, I was, was talking to you earlier uh, about, uh, about dimensional funds and what they were doing earlier in the year. Uh, Gerard pointed out that you had a very amusing comment about dimensional funds earlier in the year uh, as they converted some of their funds to ETFs. Let me just read this to, briefly here. Uh, DFA arriving late to ETFs is like Brad Pitt walking through the door of an Oscars after party at 1 a.m. Both are immediately the center of attention 
and it doesn't matter that the party is already in full spring with people dancing on the tables. This is, uh, Nate, this is terrific and very, uh, very, in, very colorful. There's only a handful of firms that could have success in e could have had success in ETFs, no matter what they got involved. I think DFA uh, is one of them. I love that quote here. And, but, you know, it, other than the nice little Valentine there, the DFA, uh, Nate, it's not just them getting very involved. Uh, it's amazing the number of big firms, uh, American Century, I'm thinking, uh, even T. Rowe Price, uh, that are becoming real uh, powerhouses in the ETF business that weren't before. It's amazing. And, you know, on the note of DFA, here you have a firm that launched their first ETFs in November of last year, and already they're knocking on the door of becoming a top 10 ETF issuer. It's truly remarkable. I think clearly DFA has extremely strong brand recognition. They have a very loyal advisor following. They have academically re uh, rigorous research underpinning their investment strategies. This isn't some fly-by-night operation. And I think perhaps most importantly, they've approached the market uh, from a low-cost standpoint. When you're going to enter the, the ETF terror dome, so to speak, you have to come willing to do battle. And, and part of being willing to do battle is coming in at a low, a low price point, and they've done that. If you look across their ETF lineup, the average expense ratio is about 23 basis points, and they have core exposure as low as 11 basis points. Uh, so I think they're a good proxy for what we're seeing across the entire ETF space. To your point, we've had firms like American Century, Harper, Janice Henderson, T. Rowe Price, Nuveen, all ramping up their uh, ETF businesses. And I think we're going to continue to see this. These traditional mutual fund companies that have strong legacy brands um, wanting to deliver exposure in the format that investors are wanting, and that's ETFs. Yeah. You, you know, uh, Gerard, this is quite an aggressive little uh, profile that you've got here with these 10 new ETFs. One thing uh, kind of... Uh, caught my eye. Two of these equity ETFs you filed for caught my eye. Uh, the International High Profitability ETF and the Emerging Markets High Profitability ETF. I, I'm, I'm wondering, is, is uh, high profitability another factor that shows outperformance along with value and small cap? I know, of course, you know, the, the, the Fama French two-factor model that came out in the early 90s indicated that small cap tends to outperform over big cap over time. Uh, value tends to outperform over growth over time. Uh, is there additional evidence now of a third factor, this profitability factor, I don't know if you want to call it uh, quality or whatever we have come to call it, is also another factor to consider. And then how do you layer that all in, these three factors, in, into your investment portfolio? So you, you got it there, Bob. Uh, it is indeed a, another factor. It is an explanatory variable when it comes to explaining differences in returns across stocks. Uh, so you can think about size, value, profitability, and the fourth one, in fact, is investment, uh, so asset growth. Uh, so how you can think about those types of strategies, Bob, is focusing on the f stocks with the highest profitability in the marketplace, and how you think about layering it in then is you overweight those stocks that have high profitability, but are also value and also a little bit smaller cap within that high profitability segment, and those, we believe, have the highest expected returns uh, among the high profitability stocks. So. Uh, thank you, Nate, uh, for the kind words there. Uh, we have been, uh, you know, I would say in the lowest morning star decile when it comes to our fees for a long period of time. Uh, and we were very cognizant when we entered the ETF market that uh, for similar services, similar asset allocation, we had to have similar uh, management fee across mutual funds or ETFs. Uh, so hopefully we, we got that right. And we've had 
quite a bit of success in the first 12 months with the conversions and so on. As Nate mentioned, we're not knocking on that top 10 door uh, with 10 more to come. And they're largely driven by the demand from the financial professionals. Nate mentioned the advisors that we work with and, and the network of advisors that we're a part of. Uh, they've been really happy with what we've done in the first year since launching ETFs and want 10 more uh, for uh, 2022. Uh, so we hope to be able to bring those to the market over the course of next year. And what, what, explain what high profitability means. Does it mean high profits is a percentage of total revenues, or does it mean you're growing your profits every, every year? And can you even, can you get high profitability with value, does, or is that a contradiction in terms? You can get high profitability with value, and in fact, in our value strategies, or in our core strategies, we overweight those stocks that have the lowest relative price and the highest profitability. Broadly speaking, how to think about it, uh, Bob, is, is that you take revenue, subtract off some measure of cost, so maybe you get to operating uh, profits or something similar, and then you can scale it by book value or assets. Uh, and when you do that, you get to a, a scaled version of profitability that you, then you can compare across firms. So you can look at one firm's profitability relative to another firm's profitability, even if one firm tends to be a lot bigger than another firm because you're scaling it by assets or book value. So that's how you compute profitability. But it's not just profitability that month, it's that quarter. It's, are you going looking at future expectations of profitability, of growing it more? I'm, I'm trying to figure out how, what's the, I know you're taking revenues and then you have a cost of goods sold in there. Uh, and you're, you're figuring out some line of, of profitability, but is there expectations for future growth taken into this? Yeah, the reason that profitability tells you something about expected returns, Bob, is that it predicts future profitability. And that's true if you take the profitability over the past 12 months, or if you take changes in profitability, so profitability growth over the past 12 months. Both of those predict future profitability, or more precisely predict which firms will have high profitability relative to other firms in the future. And so we use it as a stand-in for expected profitability, or one component of the expected cash flows to shareholders that a stock may generate on behalf of its investors. Okay, now Gerard, uh, I'm gonna change the subject slightly. You have built out your own center for separately managed accounts to make uh, customization, I guess you call it, more available to more investors at, at scale. Of course, separately managed accounts are just individual accounts that you can charge fees on, wrap fees or whatever. How does that work in practice? What are you, what are you actually doing here? So <clears throat> we've been doing SMAs or tax managed SMAs for a long time, but recently with technology and all those types of innovations, we were able to lower our minimum from 20 million to a half a million dollars. Effectively in an SMA, what you can think about happening is that an individual owns the stocks directly in their own custodial account. And that means they can express their values whatever those values may be by excluding underweighting or overweighting certain stocks. They can also manage towards their tax situation. In an ETF or a mutual fund, it's a commingle strategy. Everybody's in it together. If it's your own account, you can manage specifically towards your tax circumstances. And so those are the two big reasons why some investors like a separately managed account is tax management and then being able to express their values about what companies they want to invest in more precisely. Uh, so we launched that, um, a, a version of that that we've been doing for a long time uh, back in September, uh, and it's going well so far. And I, I think that uh, it could potentially be the future uh, of investing to stand alongside mutual funds and ETFs 
as technology enables the cost of delivering uh, customized SMAs to individuals, it drives that down and has done over time. Yeah, it's, it's kind of remarkable. I, I, what do you think of this, Nate? Can, can you do um, institutional level management on a, a personal investor level? Um, I mean, I know Gerard is not trying to be a financial advisor to individuals here, but he's trying to make this available to financial advisors. Can, can you build a totally customized stock portfolio on a, you know, on an individual uh, a level and, and, and still have it on, on an institutional size? It's, it seems like you're trying to ask for a lot. Yeah, from my perspective, this will be another tool in the advisor's toolbox. And the, the fact is going to commission-free trading and the fact that those costs have come down, fractional shares, those sorts of advancements have made what I refer to as direct indexing or custom indexing much more viable to the, the mass retail investor. Uh, and I do think there are certain situations where it makes a lot of sense. If you have an individual who, let's say, works at a particular publicly traded company and they have a large allocation to that company's shares, they don't want to double down by holding those same uh, shares in a broad index. Or perhaps you have a higher net worth uh, investor where taxes are a big consideration. They have a lot of taxable uh, investment money. Direct indexing can make sense because you can tax loss harvest at the individual level. I think if you had an investor with very strong ESG considerations, direct indexing can make a lot of sense. So I think there are use cases where it will be very valuable to, to the end investor. Uh, but I see this, to Gerard's point, is sitting alongside the other vehicles that exist. I don't see this as overtaking, for instance, exchange-traded funds. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs with our Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today we'll be continuing the conversation with Nate Girassi from the ETF store. Nate, thank you very much for staying with us. Uh, I wanted to just comment, get your comments on 2022 and what you see happening. Looking back on 2021, I'll tell you what is amazing to me. We spent the whole year talking about Bitcoin ETFs or ESG uh, or thematic ETFs, like thematic tech ETFs, uh, like cybersecurity. Those three things really dominated the discussions, Bitcoin ETFs, ESG and thematics. And yet when I look at the inflows, 800 billion, it's almost all plain vanilla, you know, S&P 500 index funds. <laughs> we spent all our time talking about this other stuff. And really what investors were doing, were putting money into the same kind of stuff uh, that Gerard O'Reilly likes to talk about. It's amazing. I mean, investors have continued flocking towards the lowest cost, most plain vanilla core exposure. But <clears throat> this is a trend that we've seen over the past decade plus. Investors have been very resilient. Any market dip that might appear, they're buying on that dip, continuing to allocate to the core of the portfolio. I look at an issuer like Vanguard, who's had a monster year, a record year, and to your point, despite the headlines that we've seen, Bitcoin ETFs, ESG, thematics, investors have gone to those core building blocks. I think we'll continue to see that trend in 2022. There's nothing that would indicate that trend is going to change anytime soon. Yeah, and the, um, I have to say, the, uh, 
The Jack Bogle disciple in me is glad to see that because I think that's what <laughs> people should be doing. But with that said, let me just talk to you about those big three other topics. Bitcoin ETF never happened. Doesn't look like it's going to happen for a long time. Bitcoin futures did, but they're fading a little bit. Um, your prognosis for this never-ending quest for the Bitcoin ETF? I expect this to take a lot longer than originally expected to get the SEC comfortable around a spot Bitcoin ETF. They're just not comfortable around the underlying crypto exchanges and their, abil their ability to properly surveil those exchanges and ensure there's not fraud and manipulation in those markets. Now, we did see Bitcoin futures ETFs launch and they've had a decent amount of success. One of the fastest ETFs ever to a billion dollars in BITO, the ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF. But since that launch, there really hasn't been a flood of assets into those products. So my expectation is that until the SEC messages that they are comfortable with a regulatory framework in place in the spot market, we're not going to see a, a spot Bitcoin ETF anytime soon. Now, there was an interesting play last week by Grayscale Investments, who is attempting to convert the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust into an ETF. During the, the normal public commenting period, they actually had their attorneys submit a letter to the SEC, essentially saying that the SEC is in violation of what's called the Administrative Procedure Act, APA. And what that is, is the SEC must treat like situations alike. And Grayscale is mounting the argument that the SEC is not doing that in this case by allowing Bitcoin futures ETFs to come to market, but not spot ETFs to come to market because both of those products ultimately track the same pricing, the same underlying crypto exchanges. So Grayscale is making the argument that that's incongruent and that if the SEC is going to approve Bitcoin futures ETFs, they should approve spot ETFs. They also make a yeah. very interesting yeah. argument that uh, the SEC is saying there's not a market of significant size, a Bitcoin market of significant size that's regulated. And ETF issuers have pointed to the CME Bitcoin futures market as an example of that. The SEC is shooting a bounce saying that's not a market of significant size. Interestingly, that, of course, is the market that the Bitcoin futures ETFs traffic in, the CME Bitcoin futures market. So it's another inconsistency yeah. that issuers are, uh, are, are fighting the SEC on. It's an interesting legal question whether it violates the Administrative Procedure Act. I'm not enough of an expert on securities law to, to know that, but the SEC has said that Bitcoin futures are a regulated market and Bitcoin is still not regulated to the extent they need to. That is a difference. I don't know if that would be sufficient to say these are not like, uh, like securities or like uh, investments. Um, I don't know, but it's an interesting... I've never heard that a line of attack before. That's what I thought was interesting about what they did. It's absolutely unique. And, you know, to me, what it comes down to is if there's fraud and manipulation in the underlying spot market, would that impact the futures market? And my opinion is both of those markets are intertwined. Somebody would argue that the futures market is leading price discovery. Somebody else would argue that the spot market's leading price discovery. In my opinion, it doesn't matter. Both of those yeah. markets are going to move in lockstep. And so if the SEC is comfortable with the pricing in the in the Bitcoin futures market, in my opinion, they should be comfortable with the pricing in the spot market. Yeah. Um, let me move on to ESGs. Um, I'm wondering if this is peak ESG. Um, I was a big fan of ESG. I like the concept of it. I've had problems defining what it is. Uh, but two points. Um, there have been a number of articles recently that have pointed out that some of these ETFs, the largest holders of them are essentially institutions, many of them in Europe, 
like the Finnish pension fund <laughs> that owns a significant stake in one of the biggest um, ESGs out there. I think you pointed out, too, that despite all this interest, there's still only a small part of the ETF market. I mean, perhaps two or three percent. Uh, so it, is ESG getting an outsized amount of attention and does it does it deserve to have more or less attention? I, I think without question, it's receiving outsized attention. I can't think of any other segment of the ETF market that receives more attention and has less assets as a percentage of the overall ETF industry. Uh, right now, ESG ETFs comprise about $90 billion in assets, but you're talking about a $7 trillion U.S. ETF industry. I think the jury's still out on whether or not there's true grassroots demand here from uh, end retail investors. I'll tell you from my perspective, operating an investment advisory firm and working with in clients, we have a wide swath in terms of our client profile, everywhere from very young investors to older investors, different political affili affiliations, different beliefs, different spots in terms of being on the spectrum towards retirement. And we don't have any demand for ESG strategies from those clients. It's just not something they're concerned about. And the perspective that they have is that the way that they can move the needle, and because I think we would all agree, we all want a better society. We all want more diversity and, and more equal pay and all those sorts of things. But the way that people believe they can move the needle is by not using a company's products or services if they disagree with those, com those companies' practices, or in terms supporting a company who they, they do believe in, in how they approach the world. Uh, they think that moves the needle more than simply uh, you know, not investing a small, minuscule percentage of their investment portfolio into a company or investing yeah. it into, into a company. Just, they just don't think it can move the needle from an investment standpoint. And I, I think something else that's important to point out here is that ESG strategies as a whole, even though costs have certainly come down in the space, they are still more expensive than just core plain vanilla exposure. And so then you have to ask yourself, well, what are you getting for that extra cost? And a lot of the ESG ETF, uh, ETFs on the market, they look very similar to the broad yeah. benchmarks. It's very they difficult do. to differentiate between the two. High quality, you know, tech names <laughs> you get in a lot of these uh, companies. Um, let me just ask you about thematic ETFs, the third block we were talking about. I, I like thematic ETFs. I like the concept of them because they're easy to understand. Nobody buys consumer discretionary stocks. You might buy retail, but you don't buy consumer discretionary. So blockchain ETFs make sense, cybersecurity, clean energy ETFs, thematics. Um, I, I think the, the issue for me is I, if Gerard was here, I'm sure he would echo this, is are you really going to get any outperformance in the long term on any of this stuff? Uh, or the, the stuff that's going to rise to the top is eventually going to be in your index fund anyhow. So should, what should an investor do? Should we, if, if Jack Bogle was here, he'd say, you guys are making me laugh because you're chasing <laughs> cybersecurity and you think that you can, you can market time with cybersecurity investments and you can't. The evidence is you cannot. So just putting on you know, your fundamental investor hat, it, it, what's the role for cybersecurity, or rather thematic ETFs? We, you want to scratch that itch because you got an idea, you think cybersecurity, but don't lie to yourself, right? I'm just trying to figure out what's the right approach to this. It's a great question, and I have an answer that I think maybe even Jack Bogle would appreciate. And the way that I like to explain this is it's my belief that most investors have some semblance of a gambler inside them. I have that. You probably have that. Certainly a lot of the clients that we speak to have that. And so the question is, 
how do you scratch that itch for that investor, um, but also keep them focused on the long term and invested in the, the boring parts of their portfolio? So the way that we approach this is, we think thematics have a really unique role from an investor behavior standpoint in that, let's say we allocate 3% to a thematic ETF. Let's say the, the Bitwise Crypto Innovators ETF, BITQ, uh, because a client has a significant interest in the crypto space. What we have found from an investor behavior standpoint is that small 3% allocation helps keep them invested in the other 97% low cost, globally diversified, broadly diversified portfolio. And so I think that's how thematics should be used. I think if you're trying to load up your portfolio on thematics and trying to, trying to time the market, that obviously is a fool's errand. I think that's very difficult. But I think thematics can help from a uh, investor behavior standpoint. And there's, there's nothing wrong with having a little bit of fun around the edges of a portfolio. If there's a particular area of the market that an investor has a, a significant interest in, I think it's fine to have a small allocation there. That's not going to uh, be a long-term detriment. It does give them a little bit of upside if in fact that thematic strategy plays out in the right direction. But again, more importantly, I think from an investor behavior standpoint, it allows them to scratch that itch while still re remaining invested in the, in the remaining boring, you know, watching grass grow, watching paint dry portfolio. Yeah. All right, Nick, I'm going to have to leave it there. And I really appreciate you sticking around for the ETF Edge podcast. You know, the Italian in me, every time your name comes up, the Italian in me wants to say Giraci because that's the way the Italians would pronounce it. But as you always keep correcting me, it's Geraci. It's Geraci and nobody, uh, it's a small percentage that ever get it right the first time. And it's I, tough. If I just start talking, I still say Geraci, Geraci, <laughs> so I'm sorry about that. Uh, but, hey, no problem uh, at all. Nate Geraci, excuse me, is the CEO of, of course, of the ETF store. Thanks very much for joining us and thank you for listening to the ETF Edge podcast. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Here's to greater possibilities together. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.